benefits. Yeah. Yeah, so the question is, so if you're, yeah, that's one way of asking it. If you're playing on the show and you have to decide whether to split or steal and the outcome is that the other person splits, when you go home, what do your family members say about the fact that you split or the fact that you stole? That is, if you stole, do they praise you? Yay, you got the whole thing, you weren't suckered, you didn't give up half the pot? Or... If you split, do they praise you and say, yeah, you did the right thing, you could have been greedy? I think it's one of those things where it might be that your spouse would have a different view from your children. Um, and, uh, but that's another reputational thing. That is that you're considering the reputation, um, not only your reputation among the public at large or the audience or the, or the TV watching audience, or Jasper Carrot himself, but you're also who's, who's everybody's father in the game show, but you're also considering your reputation in private, in your own, in your own household management, if I could. How would you say that in Greek? Oh, econ oikonomos, economy, yeah. Okay, good. So look at all these, you guys, you have a lot of power today because uh, we're figuring out the rest of the syllabus and um, the people not here get fewer votes. They get as many votes as I need to give them, but fewer votes. Okay, um, I have your midterms back. Uh, you won't be surprised that like most midterms, it's bimodal. What does that mean, anyone? No? It's a it's bimodal. Your There's grades are bimodal. What? Like Say it again. Very common, like well, it's a bimodal curve. Oh, okay. So no, it's similar. So bimodal means that it's not a bell curve, but it's two bell curves. There's the bell curve of those who did badly, and then the bell curve. No, no, no. This is always true. <laughs> I guess you guys don't know this that this is always true of exams that it's almost always the case that exams are bimodal, not SATs, where you just get a normal distribution, as it's called. That's professor lied to me. Why? What did your well, stats professor like, say? Most, like, you design tests to be, like, normal. You design them to be normal, but the students don't act normally. <laughs> They're the students who study and those who don't. And you get a normal curve among those who have studied, and you also get a normal curve among those who haven't. And it's the, that's, that's what gives you the two modes. I've never given a test that hasn't, well, I have, and then it's been too easy. I've never given a test that hasn't, a serious test that hasn't been bimodal. Ask your SAS professor. Who's your SAS professor? Who is it? Okay, well, it could be, are his tests easy or hard? You took them. I took one. How'd you do? I mean, did you I find mean, it? You don't have to say how you did. Was like, it easy or hard? The average was around seven. Okay, so it's hard. All right, so you can make it, you, you can mess with it so that it is, if it's hard for everyone, you may get a normal curve because the, even the people who would otherwise do well on it are, um, there's going to be a long tail on the, over 70 side of things, as well as a long-ish tail on the, on the under 70 side of things. Um, but I think if you, give a, if you give a test like this one, which is really, did you do the reading, it's almost going to be um, uh, yes or no. And that's going to give you bimodals. That is, those who did the reading will essentially be saying yes. And those who didn't do the reading will essentially be saying no. They may not wish to be saying that, but that's what we call an honest signal or a costly signal. And so you get, you get a bimodal distribution. But I've been teaching here for, you know, since I was 28, so for like 10 years. And it's good. Those of you who didn't laugh, a little extra credit. Um, I've been since I've been teaching here, I don't think I've ever given a serious test that hasn't been bimodal. And 
And it may just be that people think that they can um, bullshit their way through my tests and that I give that impression. And they're the ones who don't study. So anyhow, this is bimodal, just so you know. And um, if you are in the left-hand mode then and you want to talk to me about it, you can. Um, and if you're in the right-hand mode and you want to talk to me about it, you can too, but uh, the conversation would be different and more fun. Okay, do you want to go over the test? Or is that just too... All right, let's just do it briefly. Um, two functions of money. <laughs> um, not really. Money is only exchange. No, I know, but that's not a function of money. That's a function of an object. Right? Can you make the argument? Make the argument why it matters that it's money, that you're using a, you, you said dime for a mm -hmm. screwdriver. So make the argument for why it's useful as money. Because? As money. In other words, a dime or a slug, which has more use value? A dime or a screwdriver, which has more use value? Because. All right, I'm waiting. It can be used as a screwdriver or to, like, scratch off the back of, like, a debit card. Oh! Or, um, but couldn't you do that with a screwdriver? No. All right, Swiss <laughs> Army knife or dime, which has more use value? You can take a dime on an airplane. <laughs> and what can you do with it on the airplane? You can scratch off the back of a debit card. <laughs> Well, yeah, and what you would have though is more exchange value. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, I mean, there you could use it as both. I mean, you could pay with the diamond, and you could also use it to press it off. No, because then you won't have the diamond anymore. You use a different diamond. <laughs> you're not using the same diamond. You're just using diamond. Also, how much do lottery tickets cost in this uh, <laughs> the area? Ten cent lottery tickets. I'll take a ten cent lottery ticket. <laughs> Who wants to bid for a dime that I have? Remember, the person comes in second also has to pay. No? All right. Just thought I'd try. Can you make a better argument? I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Can anyone make a better argument? I mean, they convinced me. <laughs> I know, but that's uh, you're not the person who has to be convinced. I mean, I don't feel like that's Okay, so, so in other words, now. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and. I love that as a child. <laughs> Just swimming in money. Have you read Cryptonomicon? Has anyone read Cryptonomicon? The um, um. No, no, no. Uh, shit, what's his name? Neil Stevenson. Cryptonomicon, he wrote Snow Crash. Are you guys, like, not with it for 1990s, really best-selling fantasy science fiction, totally amazing fantasy science fiction? Neil Stevenson's still writing. Athenum is maybe his most famous recent book. No, this is not ringing a bell to anyone? Oh, you guys are lucky because you're going to love these books. You're going to totally love Snow Crash, which was one of the two first, with Neuromancer, Snow Crash was one of the two first virtual reality um, novels. No, it's great. Neuromancer is great, too. Have you heard of Neuromancer? I know you have, but just look, ask your, ask, ask your cool friends about you know, Neil I Stevenson. I saw a post article this morning that celebrities are starting to carry around books as accessories. Oh, have you seen what's on my office it was door? Like Hadid carrying around Albert Camus' The Stranger, and it's like an accessory. Wait, what? Have you seen what's on my office door? I didn't know they're not reading. I've never been to your office. You've never been to my office? You've missed something. Garnet Hill had um, a catalog. I think it was Garnet Hill, which has a model um, reading. Actually, she's not reading. I think no, she may be reading. She's either reading or thinking. But um, she's she's um, outside wearing really really beautiful clothing, 
and um, it's clear that her life is good and that she's, um, what's good about it is both the sunshine and the clothes that she's wearing in the sunshine as she sits and reads. And what she's reading is Cormac McCarthy's The Road, which, do you guys know what The Road is? It's like you didn't say, oh my God, the way you should have. It was also a movie, it was an Oprah's, so you guys know who Oprah is, right? Just checking. Okay, so it was an Oprah's book club. The Road is one of the most grimly depressing novels ever written. What it essentially is, is it's 10 years after some terrible event. It's really about use value and not exchange value. Um, actually, that's maybe the one thing that's wrong with The Road, is that, that is there's no concept of exchange value in it. We could read it, since we're figuring out the syllabus. So just quickly, The Road, does anyone know about it? Okay, describe, Jimmy. Ten-year-old boy, yep. Yeah, so they're made, so like the world's ended, and there's like rotary gangs of like people, like, I think they eat each other, there's like yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, yes, like protect his son, and they're trying to just like, you know, make it in a really tough world. Yeah, so what's happened is there's, e it's either a nuclear winter, or there's, or the Yellowstone Caldara has gone off or a meteor has hit the Earth. We don't know what it is. Um, but there is one of three major catastrophic events that could um, cause decades of darkness at, due to, the, due to the, the dust that, that this catastrophic event would send into the atmosphere. That has occurred. It occurs 10 years before the novel starts. So now, and the night that the child is born. And so now it's 10 years later, and the father and his 10-year-old son are trying to, they hear a rumor that there's something um, by the sea that will be helpful, that, there's, that there are people who are actually trying to do something constructive. So the entire novel is them trying to get to the ocean, and um, they're on the road then. But this is 10 years after major, major disaster. There are very few people left alive in the world. And the way they live is by attacking each other. It's sort of like Mad Max or The Road Warrior, except um, in complete darkness and without any resources at all. And the only resources they can find is occasionally they will find um, some cash that some maniac survivalist has put together in our day. Um, because they're afraid of nuclear war and is hidden because they're ready for nuclear war and then they die in whatever it is that happened and occasionally they'll find a cache like this and be able to find some stuff. And there's a great scene where the father finds a can of Coke and gives it to his son and the son has the one and only Coca-Cola of his life and he just can't believe how good it is. It's like, it's like a scene of pure happiness in this otherwise unbelievably grim novel. So it's just amazingly grim. It's horrifyingly grim. So this Garnet Hill model is sitting in the sunshine on an outdoor chair in her beautiful clothes with her beautiful hair um, and the beautiful sun um, hitting her, and she's reading The Road. So that's definitely a book as an accessory. It's exchange value, but not use value. So the Maybe, so for those of you who are late, I was mentioning the bimodal distributions on your tests and how if you're in one mode, you may want to come talk to me. The, um, um, we were then going over the questions on the test. So um, the first question is, what are the different, um, according to Aristotle or according to Smith or according to Zimmel, what are the functions, name two functions of money? And we had exchange value, or medium of exchange, and what else? Store of money, store of value. Store of value. So medium of exchange, store of value, and bookkeeping device. So those are the classic three functions of money. You only need to do two. Then the question was, what about using money to go back to um, the more vivid um, joke that I told you guys a while ago. What about changing a five for five ones so you can wipe your butt? Is that a use of money? Is that a function of money? 
Yeah, but see, everything has use value, but very few things are money. That's the thing. So when you use the dime as a screwdriver or to, um, even more wonderfully, to scrape off the lottery tickets, so you're trying to, you're, you're using the dime as an object hoping to get exchange value out of that object if you win the lottery. Okay, you could have made the argument. Okay, do you want what's behind door number two, or do you want me to tell you? Oh, man, you guys are grim about this. I'm sorry. All right, but just think the Yellowstone Caldara could have gone off, and you would be much grimmer. It would be much worse. Cannibalism would ensue, like, immediately. Within three days, there'd be cannibalism. Okay, the use money in order to have exchange value, according to Marx, it has to, at some point, the actual money, which for Marx is gold, has to have use value. It has to be a commodity, and commodities do, what makes something a commodity is that it has use value. So unless, according to Marx, no one really believes this anymore, and especially modern monetary theory doesn't believe this. Modern monetary theory thinks that money is like points in pinball um, or in a video game. There's no limit to the number of points, and the only thing they do is keep track. They do what money does. Points do what, well, as you know at Brandeis, points do what money does, but they have no use value at all, right? Um, so the, um, but for Marx, the only reason that money becomes a medium of exchange is that it's something that has use value and therefore you can barter it to someone else. And this thing that is barterable as use value, barter is all about use value, right? That is the theory of barter, is that barter is use value. That you have something useful, someone else has something that's useful. You trade and you give them the thing that is useful to them that you have too much of. You don't need all that use. And they give you something that's useful to you that they have too much of. And that's Zimmel's saying that exchange is, um, a, is a relationship in which each gets more than they give. Um, you give surplus use value to someone else. This is not what Marx means by surplus value, by the way, so don't be um, confused by that. But you give surplus use value to someone else, use value you don't need because how many screwdrivers do you need? And they give you use value that they don't need because how many hammers do they need? Three good hammers should be enough for anyone. And they have 400. So they give you a hammer. You have 400 screwdrivers, and you only need three, so you give them a screwdriver. Now you have a hammer, and they have a screwdriver, and everybody's happy. So Marx says that if something doesn't have use value, it's not going to have exchange value because no one will barter for it. That what happens is exchange value comes out of bartering use values. And in that barter, there are certain things that people can count on others always finding useful. And then there are other advantages to certain things, in particular gold, which is that they don't get corrupt, they're easily measured, they're um, infinitely malleable, they carry a lot of value in a small um, quantity, has a lot of value. But if gold didn't have use value for marks, it wouldn't have exchange value. And so the question about paper money, which really is fictional money, the question about paper money then becomes a question, you can swim in it, maybe. If you, try, if you dive into a pool of gold, you're in trouble, but you can swim in paper money. And, but it really doesn't have very much use value, except for ass wiping, maybe. Um, for writing notes to people, you can do that. Uh, spies will sometimes use it, because paper is useful. You can, if it's the road, you can light a fire with it. If um, you need tinder and you find a cache of money, no one cares about paper money anymore, but you can light a fire with it. So it's got some use value, but basically none. Yeah. Um, going back to the barter. Yeah. Um, I assume there were traders back in the past, and they would. Traders? Yeah, like maybe before 
Like yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the theory. So that's the Adam Smith theory. For them, when they would barter something, would they barter with the concept that their surplus, because they wouldn't have needed any in the first place, their need for it was zero, so they'd be able to barter everything they had? Well, so give me an example. Just tell a story. If a person acquired furs, not that they needed any, but just to trade with other people. So their need for it would be zero. They'd be able to barter everything. Okay, so so what? But they that what they're doing is they're getting something that you would only barter away something that you don't actually need if you take need seriously. That is, if need means without it you're dead, like you need air. Um, most of the time, we use need in a not in a somewhat metaphorical way. Um, we need, um, you know, I really need to see this movie. Well, you won't die if you don't see the movie. So you don't really need to see it, but what you're saying is um, my desire to see it is strong enough that it begins to feel like a need um, in the same way that a need for oxygen feels like a need if you're holding your breath or if you're underwater. Um, so if you need something, you can't barter it. If other people need it and they don't have it, they'll give you whatever they have to get it if they need it in the, in the strictest sense of need. So sure, what you might do if you're a farmer, for example, is you might know that people need bread or they need eggs, and um, so you're going to produce more bread or more eggs than you need to survive. And it doesn't matter if you have zero need. It just matters that you have more, that you can, you can take what you need and then you don't need any more. So that's the equivalent of zero, right? More like it's kind of like if it was a farmer situation, maybe they have all these carrot seeds and they don't like carrots. But okay. they're like, oh, if I grow these carrots, I can barter all of them away. Okay. I don't need any. Yeah. I don't want any of them. All right, fine. Um, and so, so what's the question then? Did that happen? Yes. So I was just wondering, is there kind of like surplus everything because there they have no use for it? Oh, you mean can there be surplus utility that all the utility is surplus? So for the producer, yes. Yeah, you can definitely produce things. There are, I mean, we talked earlier about, um, well, what, what would be a good example of this? We talked earlier about the shoes. That is that um, left shoes are produced in Vietnam and right shoes are produced in China. And they therefore have no use value whatever to the producers because there's nothing you can do with a bunch of left shoes. They just don't have use value for you um, because you need the pair for the shoe to become <clears throat> useful. Um, so they have no use value whatever for the producers, it, even including the factories that are producing them. But they do... Um, they do have use value to others. So if you have produced 10 left shoes, those have no use value to you, but they do have use value to 10 people who own 10 right shoes. So that would be an example, right? I mean, that's a real-world example. It's, not, it's, it's not, quite as, not quite as neat as I'm describing it now, but that's a real-world example. But, yeah, there are um, people mm. who... Um, I think there, there are manufacturers um, of religious items that don't belong to the religion that they're manufacturing the items for. Um, so you can have, um, for example, uh, you might have a mezuzah factory, which is staffed entirely by um, people who aren't Jewish and therefore have no use for a mezuzah. Um, or you can just be a good carpenter and not be Jewish. Maybe your father was, but you're not. Um, and you can create mezuzahs, and they have no use value to you because you don't believe um, in the ritual of putting up a mezuzah. Do, do people know what mezuzahs are? They're, explain, Limpe. Um, there's, they're, um, they're sort of like scrolls of like scripture that you like put on your door frame. Yeah. So, uh, according to um, 
to Deuteronomy, you're supposed to bind the words of, of God on your hands and on the doorposts of your house. And um, so it is a Jewish custom to put, to put <coughs> prayers, particular prayers, two particular prayers on a little scroll, which is then put into a wooden box, which is nailed to the, um, the door, um, to, the, to the side of the door, to the side of the, of the, of the doorway. And so you can produce those, and they can have no use value to you, like not liking carrots would have no use value to you, but use value to others. Or you can produce kosher food when you may really despise kosher food um, because you, you are not vegan and you want your cookies to have butter in them and not Crisco. So use value to others, but not to you. So, yeah, you can have that. Um, so where is that going? Why are you asking that? wanted to make sure that, that there was such thing as a utility value of zero. Yeah. Um, all the diamonds on Venus have utility zero for us. Right? They do nothing for us. Full of diamonds. I think that there are a lot of diamonds on Venus, but they do nothing for us. All right. Um, why, why are you interested in that? That it could be useful for someone else but not for you. Is that the idea? Yeah. That there can be utility. Yeah. Well, that's the whole idea. I don't think it matters. As long as there's unequal utility, there's the possibility of barter. So can the inequality be zero versus, versus 10? Sure. Um, as long as the utility is unequal. That's why each gets more than they give. Because you get something that's more useful to you than what you've given away. And what you've given, given away can have zero utility. In fact, it can probably have negative utility. That is, someone, you are a recovering alcoholic, and you really um, feel that the alcohol in your house is going to destroy your life. And um, so it has negative utility. If you drink that alcohol, you'll die. And um, you have a friend who is suffering from um, being too sober all the time in this crazy world where sobriety is miserable is misery. And so you give your alcohol away, which has negative utility to you, and you give it to them, and it has positive utility to them. And they give you um, a box of Astaire and Rogers DVDs, which just reminds them of how miserable the world is now compared to the 1930s. And, but they make you happy when you're not drinking. So both of you give, give something away that has negative utility for you, but positive utility for the other person. So does that make sense? All right. So yeah, you can have that. Um, but the basic idea would be if you could, um, if you said money has to have utility or it wouldn't be money, um, that there is no such thing, there can't be such a thing as pure exchange value. That's Marx's claim. Lot, people don't think that anymore, but that was, but Marx thought they should. And there was great suspicion of paper money from the time of its introduction. There was lots and lots of people who thought paper money was a scam. And it often is a scam. But there were lots of people who thought it was a scam from the get-go. Okay, question. That was question one. Um, define potlatch. I liked your definition. <laughs> that was not the right definition. No, it wasn't. But I still liked it. You don't want to say? I said it. It was a latch on a pot. Yeah. Because I had nothing else, and I figured I'd put something down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, that had use value because I laughed, but it didn't have exchange value because you got it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Understandable. Okay. No, some of you got it right, yeah. Um, is it like a ceremony of sorts in which like heads of tribes like have to give as much slash destroy as much wealth as they can as like a showing of power and then like so if they do that, then it's 
slash give away their own wealth. Yeah, so it's the destruction of value as a sign of your capacity to destroy value. So in modern, has anyone taken evolutionary biology in this class? Um, I thought that was a standard class. Uh, that evolution, oh, like, yes, like 16. Is that what it is? Yeah. Who teaches that? James Morris. Yeah, and that's supposed to be a great class, right? Yeah. Did you think it was great? Yeah, I liked it. I'm just not good at taking tests, but I like the content of the class. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hmm. Are you good at taking tests? <laughs> um, <Okay. laughs> All right, so there's an idea. Do people know why peacocks um, have their ridiculous tails and why flamingos are pink, which makes them really visible to predators? Why? Sexual selection. Why? Um, so the males often have like things like the brightest feathers to attract the females, and like the brighter feathers that they have, like for peacocks, the more it seems to the female that he'll be able to produce healthy offspring that will then survive and produce more healthy offspring. Yeah, why? I mean, isn't it stupid? Lots of people think it's stupid. That is, it's like walking um, through a dark city flashing your money. That's what a peacock does. It's like the, peacock had, the peacock's tail is like a whole bunch of money that the peacock is holding up. Yeah. Um, I think, in, like from from like the evolutionary perspective, it's like if if it's like if I still manage to survive when I'm like literally like throwing my, like flashing my money everywhere. Yeah. Then that means that I have good genes. Yes. So it's what's called costly signaling, also sometimes called the handicap principle. And the idea is that if a peacock with this absurd tail can nevertheless survive and not get caught in the bushes and not get caught by a predator and still survive, or if a flamingo, do you know what makes flamingos pink? They're born white, but they eat a lot of shrimp. They eat a lot of shrimp, but in particular, what they do is they store a toxin which turns them pink. So pink is the pink is actually a stored toxin within flamingos. <coughs> and other birds that eat shrimp don't store that toxin. Flamingos do store the toxin, and what they're signaling is that they're fit enough to be capable of storing this toxin and not dying from it. So um, it's the same thing as, as uh, human beings who um, behave... Um, you know, sort a sort of adolescent thing where people um, take huge risks that their parents can't believe they're taking because what is the benefit? Like my poker playing friend who bought a sports car, and the benefit was not one. Um, so why buy a sports car in speed? Why be James Dean? Do you guys know who James Dean is? Okay. So Neil Stevenson, ask your cool friends. Um, but why do that um, if you're putting yourself in danger? And the answer, why is danger cool? Why live fast, as James Dean said, live fast, die young, and leave a good-looking corpse? Why live fast? Why risk dying young? And the answer is that if you don't die young, it shows that it was a risk that you were capable of meeting, that you are signaling your own fitness, as Lin Pei was putting it. You're signaling that you have genes that allow you to survive poison, that allow you to fight off predators even when you have this ridiculous tail. It's a smile when you say that sort of thing. Did you guys see The Ballad of Lester um, Scruggs, the new Coen Brothers movie on Netflix? It was really good. It's really good. Yeah, so the, fir it, the first um, figure in that movie, it's, a, it's, a, it's like six stories. Um, and the first story is about a costly signaler. Um, so, you know, if you just think of westerns or parody westerns where you have poker players who are just completely at ease even as the bad guys are gathering around them in the shadows and are, are about to do terrible things, and the fact that they're ignoring the bad guys when everyone else is frightened for them, that's a signal of their self-confidence. And if they're right to be self-confident, they'll survive. So it's not only that they survive, but that they survive easily by doing 
things that are not maximally fitted for survival, like being relaxed, not having their guns out, um, not being um, the first to draw. All of that is a signal of how good they are, and it's a signal that turns out to be true if they survive. If they don't survive, then they win the Darwin Award. Do people know what the Darwin Awards are? Um, it's the award given for people who most whose deaths most dedicate themselves to like the cause of like Darwinian selection. How? Um, like just by doing something very like stupid. Yeah, so they do something very stupid and then therefore don't pass on their genes, and that's a good thing um, because because they're so stupid that they die in a really stupid way, and those really stupid genes are filtered out. So they get an award. It's always posthumous. Is that what you were going to say? Yeah. Okay. Um, so the um, idea of a potlatch then is it was originally an it's an anthropological idea that evolutionary biologists picked up on, although they didn't actually read the anth anthropology. They reinvented that wheel. And the idea is that if you can afford to burn money, that's the idea of conspicuous consumption, if you can afford to destroy wealth, what that shows is how much you can afford. So notice, by the way, how this goes with the same questions about utility and value and um, the inequalities of utility and value that we were looking at in Mandeville and Smith and Kant, which is that if you can afford to burn money, then it looks like a, what Mandeville would say about someone who burns money is what? Yeah, so what's the selfish reason? What, what do you get out of burning money? I mean, you get pleasure in some way. I don't know, maybe yeah, but um, I, f I feel like I could get more pleasure from a glass of wine than from burning a $100 bill. Here, let's try it. Anyone have a match? <laughs> no, I don't have, luckily I don't have a hundred dollar bill, so we're even. Um, but I feel like it would be really much more pleasurable to me to drink a glass of wine than, I know you guys are mainly under 21, so I guess this doesn't really speak to you. But um, I think I would prefer, um, well, actually I remember the, this was, I loved this. It was a strange thing to love, but I loved it. After the 9-11 attacks, um, the there were uh, Taliban students. You know, Taliban means um, seminary students. Do people know that that's what the word means? So now you know. Um, they're the they're the the they're basically students in the semin in the seminaries. They're learning religious law. Um, so the seminarians, um, right after the nine eleven attacks, when um, they um, thought the U.S. wouldn't do anything about it. That, um, <coughs> no idea how successful the provocation would be, but they said the reason we'll win is that Americans love Coca-Cola, we love death. And um, my view is, yep, I really do prefer a Coke to death. Um, and that's kind of a good thing. But if you drink enough Coke. Yeah, you would die. Well, it depends. Is it diet? Or oh, if you drink enough Diet Coke, you'll really die. Um, that's why they call it die. <laughs> Finally got you to laugh. I've been aiming at this all semester long. All right. So there used to be death cigarettes. Do you guys know that? Death cigarettes. That was a brand name. And um, you know how cigarette packs have to have warnings, but... Um, you, you don't see cigarette ads anymore, but, if you, but it used to be the case that if you saw a cigarette <laughs> ad, um, they would always hide the warning if they showed you a pack of cigarettes. They had to have the warning in the ad, but they would also have a vivid picture of a pack of cigarettes, and the warning could never be seen on the pack, except for death cigarettes. Death cigarettes would be like a, they had a skull and cr crossbones, and, um, and the warning was prominently displayed, and it was all in black, and it was death cigarettes. Um, they're really dangerous. And um, high tar, high nicotine, full of other. So, of course, that attracted certain costly signalers. Um, if you ask why people smoke, it's cost. Actually, that's a really good example. Um, the reason people smoke is to show that they don't that that they are fit enough and powerful enough and self confident enough to be reckless, and they're not worried about it. 
Um, and it's like, I'm so powerful, I have to nerf myself? Like, well, that's a different kind of smoking. Um, but it's also, I'm so cool, I'm just like Humphrey Bogart or something. Or, I'm so cool, I could be in a French movie. Which, <laughs> what could be cooler than that, if you think about it? So that's, that's, what, that's how potlatches work, um, is they are signals of power. So what Mandeville would say is, you um, burn a $100 bill, and um, obviously you're getting more than $100 out of, more than $100 of pleasure out of that. That seems really unlikely that anyone could get $100 of pleasure out of burning a $100 bill. It seems like maybe you could get a dollar's worth of pleasure. And in fact, that's the point. Um, you could imagine people, you could imagine little ratty people taking dollar bills and drawing zeros on them so that they look like $100 bills and <laughs> then burning them. And they would be missing the point. The point is that you are so reckless that you just don't care that you are losing value. And the value that you're getting out of losing value isn't worth the value that you've lost. But that contributes to its value. And um, so now we're in the land of partial derivatives. But the, um, the, the <clears throat> point of a potlatch is that you're showing how much you can afford, which also means showing that you can afford something that doesn't pay for itself. And the very fact that it doesn't pay for itself is central to the idea of a potlatch. If it did pay for itself, it wouldn't be a potlatch. It would be a fake potlatch. Um, it would be um, like buying burgers for an entire football team in order to be able to tell your Twitter followers that you've done that so that it would be worth more to you when you paid out of your own money than um, uh, the burgers actually cost you. So, But a real potlatch is one in which you come out behind. And coming out behind in a way is you're trading cash for glory, but glory is worth less than cash. The A completely cynical view of human behavior, like mandibles, would say that people look for glory because it has cash value, because you win an Olympic medal, and then you get a contract with Wheaties, and you get to be on a Wheaties box, and you get a lot of money for that. So it's not that you're in the Olympics because you want the glory of the medal. It's you're in the Olympics because if you get the glory of the medal, you can trade it in for cash. But the potlatch shows the opposite of that, that you are preferring glory to cash. So, okay, that's potlatch. Question two. What does Guyon see in the Cave of Mammon? A surprising number of people got this right. Makes me wonder about Schmoop. Um... They may be a better website than I thought. Um, just kidding. I always get pawed that sometimes. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you need an ad blocker. But you can't use one on Chrome anymore. Okay, Cave of Mammon. Is it Athena? Is it what? Does he see Athena? Not Athena. Uh, <laughs> Athena, but you didn't say Athena. No, you didn't. Oh, wait, did I say it? No, I said arachnid. Yes. Arachnid? Yes. Oh. That's, that's an answer. Oh. Who's arachne? <coughs> Spins webs. Yes, arachne is the person who competed with Athena in weaving. And like a fool, she competed with a goddess and lost. And so she turned into what? Spider, hence the arachnids that you learned so much about in evolutionary biology. Um, so, yeah, so arachne is one figure that Guyon sees. What else does he see in the Cave of Mammon? Ambition. Ambition, good. What else? Gold. Gold, lots of wealth. Um, that's the main thing. Mammon is the god of greed. Are you, you're relieved. Okay. I know, don't put question marks down, you guys. That's such a mistake. I mean, talk about honest signaling. Talk about, talk about being honest and show, showing your honesty. Gold? <laughs> um, yeah. Yes. Even if you're guessing, guess 
confidently. <laughs> Even if you're totally wrong, say it in such a way that the person grading the exam will say, did I forget that? <laughs> wow. Um, of course, when they reread the entirety of Canto 7 of Book 6 to see whether you're right or not, and you turn out not to be right, they may resent you. But still, be confident. So if you learn nothing else in this class, it's be confident in your guesses. Um, don't don't um, indicate. Don't, don't throw yourself on the mercy of the person like, gold? Well, maybe. Sure, why not? Because you put the question mark, I guess I'll give you partial credit. That's not how we do it. Just so you know. All right. Um, one person said he sees mammon. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> um, just mammon? No. Broad questions. Yes. Um, all right. Um, How is money the blood of a commonwealth? Who said that, by the way? Money the blood of a commonwealth. Hobbes, yes. Yes, good. Yeah. All right. <laughs> nice. Um, how is money the blood of the Commonwealth? It allows for taxes? Okay, question yeah. Mark? Yeah, that would be a question mark, but I gave credit on that. It, like, it needs to circulate around everyone in, in the nation for it to be a healthy country. Yeah. Essentially, it dissolves use into exchange. I mean, that's not the way Hobbes puts it, but that's the basic idea, that it makes barter... Barter is hard unless you have a medium and money can flow everywhere and make possible exchange among the most disparate and heterogeneous um, populations. So it also makes trade, foreign trade possible as well. Okay, um, how is Midas about exchange value? What does it say about exchange value? Midas' gift gives him exclusively exchange value and no use value, mm -hmm. and it doesn't go out too well for him. Yeah. So. Yeah. Were you going to say something somewhere? Or like, he can't, like, spend it. He can't actually exchange. Right. Well, he can't, he can't exchange it for anything useful. So if you think about what spending is, spending is taking something with exchange value and trading it for something with use, with use value. Otherwise, just keep your own exchange value. Why would you exchange something that has exchange value for something else that has exchange value? Um, you wouldn't. So all Midas has access to, he thinks he's rich because he has access to unlimited exchange value, but that unlimited exchange value means that he has no access whatever to use value. And because he has no access to use value, um, it turns out that money is ultimately valueless to him. Exchange value should always be the handmade to use value. That's why usury is so weird to people, because that is exchanging exchange value for more exchange value. That's what the Kawabata story is about as well. Why would you pawn money? It's a version, if you think of it, of the same issues as the Midas story. Um, the right casket? Lead. Yeah. Um, do you remember the song that Portia sings while um, Bassanio is? Um, it's actually, so, so the song is, tell me where is, do you know it? Can you sing it? Yeah, can you sing it beautifully? No, okay. Um, I brought my little lute. Oh, damn, it's not here. Tell me where is fancy bread or in the heart or in the head, how derived how nourished. And what she doesn't say is maybe the last possible rhyme for those three rhymes, bread, yeah. head, nourished, lead. Yeah. So it's a, it's a really good hint. <laughs> Dead. That too. Because it's a casket. Yeah. Um, so the Grateful Dead, who's her father, um, want her to be singing this song by Robert Hunter called Tell Me Where Is Fancy Bread. In James Joyce's Ulysses, um, the main character, the hero of Ulysses, is an advertising agent, and um, he's thinking of good lines for ads, and he comes up with, so here's pure use value. Tell me where is fancy bread. 
he's Jewish, so you have to think of this in a slightly Jewish Jewish accent in Dublin in 1904. So, can you tell me where there's fancy bread? Yes, at Burke's the ba- Burke the Baker's, it is said. So if you want fancy bread, go to Burke's. Um, so that's use value. That's a little that's a little fable about use value. Okay, um, who can you practice usury on? Foreigners. Foreigners. Yes. Those of you said no one thought it was a trick question, but it wasn't. Um, <laughs> foreigners. Oh. Oh yes. Okay. Good. Um, what is under the tree in the partner's tale? And gold, death, money, gold, sure. Uh, contention. One person said exchange value. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and then you accepted it. I, did I accept it? Let me look. I can't remember. I liked it so much. Yeah, I gave half credit <laughs> for exchange value. Um, yeah. It was useful to some. Uh, Kant, definition of beauty. Oh. Yeah. Yes, that's the main thing, the appearance of use value. I thought that was Smith. Um, Smith, it's use value plus appearance. That is, um, Kant is is going a step farther than Smith. Um, Kant specifically says that it should be appearance of use value without use value. So Kant thinks for it to be beauty, it shouldn't have use value. If it has the appearance of use value but also has use value, that is, if you're right about its appearance of use value, um, then it's agreeable. But pure beauty has no use value, just looks like it does. So it's only um, interacting with one part of your mind and interacting with that part of your mind very purely. These are in alphabetical order. Um, okay, why don't you, we were going to talk about the rest of the syllabus. What you should do for Monday is read The Gambler, the Dostoevsky. Um, novella, The Gambler. Um, and on Monday, we'll also figure out the rest of the syllabus. Oh, wait, wait, well, and what was the vegetable? All right, good. Well, one person just, one person had the right number of